Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, uh, an evening where we are going to have an opportunity to talk about the stuff of the Reformation. Uh, this has been a long time coming. I know last week uh, I was talking about how we were going to get into uh, Unipro Serra, Blessed Unipro Serra, soon to be Saint Unipro Serra. There are lots of conversations about him um, right now, but we are going to hold up on that. There are certain people I wanted to have on this radio program, and they were just unavailable. So I decided to uh, jumpstart our discussion on the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation. We will be in the Reformation for at least two weeks, if not three, because to really understand the Reformation, and we will underscore this point, is to really understand what was going on in the historical context and certainly, uh, we will at the same time be paying close attention to the many details as you kind of go through the Reformation itself. So with that, it is Monday evening, and I do have John O'Hare with me to discuss the Reformation. So John, it is great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here again, Joe. Thank you. So the Protestant Reformation, as I was just noting, John, we really do have to roll up our sleeves and work in the tall grass, <laughs> and that tall yes. grass uh, being the history that leads up to the Reformation itself. This just didn't happen one day. And as we talked about on an occasion or two about Martin Luther, uh, this was a man who uh, was at one time a very devout Augustinian monk. So the question has to be asked, what happened? You know, yeah. what happened? This man who translated the Bible into the German vernacular, what happened? And so this is a question we're going to respond to by the grace of God, go John, you and I. There's so many books out there. There's so many audio cassettes on both sides. And what we're going to do over the course of this evening and subsequent evenings, John, is just really call upon the Holy Spirit to really just guide our discussion as we work through that all-important information as it concerns the Reformation, so that we might come to a better understanding in our little circle here. I know there are listeners just not across um, this state of California and the nation, but I know there are uh, listeners outside this country. I know there are listeners uh, who are tuning in by way of podcast in Germany who might be very interested Good. in this subject matter. So we do welcome all of you uh, into our studio here. So, John, the Reformation. Well, uh, Martin Luther uh, put his 95 thesis on the wall of the Wittenberg uh, Church around, I mean, exactly on October 31st, 1517, and it was popular immediately. So what led up to this? Let's mm -hmm. take a look at some of the good things that were going on in the church prior to this, maybe a century before this. For one thing, there could not have been a Reformation unless a lot of people were interested in the church, and there were. There was a, mm. lot, a great deal of money donated to the church. Buildings were uh, kept up. Uh, pilgrimages were going on. Uh, preachers were paid to come and give uh, their talks. Yeah, uh, there yeah. was a lot of money being spent, not just by the well-to-do, but by, uh, by regular people in the church. So there was a great deal of interest in religion 
well before Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Another thing was the printing press. It was invented probably around 1450 by Johannes Gutenberg, and it had been around for a while, and the amount of printed material just simply went out hugely. If I can just go off topic a bit, uh, the Huntington Library in Southern California has books that came out about the first 10 to 15 years after the printing press and the amount of printed material quadrupled by mm. several hundred. Mm. That's, you know, that, that's how much... That's an uh, illustration of what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, That was yeah. truly the probably the greatest technological discovery of all time. Okay, now, one of the most popular books was The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Mm-hmm. And that book has been in print since the day it was published, probably around 1460. And still considered a Christian still classic, considered, of course. Right. Yeah. Other things were going on. Don't forget humanism, and this would be in the north, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, we mentioned him, Thomas More. These people were trying to bring intellectual honesty and reformation to the Christian church, and they were very much involved. And there was lots of excellent material coming out of them. So religion was doing was quite active before mm-hmm. Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the things that might have led to the Reformation that were not good was anti-clericalism. There was quite a bit of dislike of priests, etc. Now, what mm-hmm. would that be? Priests didn't were not tried in regular civilian courts. They had special clerical courts that made them kind of special. They didn't have to serve on fire watches. They didn't have to watch the walls of the city. They were excused from these things. Um, another thing is... <clears throat> There were consuls and papacy in Avignon, these kind of uh, disturbed mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. A lot of the popes that were, that were before Martin Luther, let me go Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X, when Martin Luther uh, put his thesis up, they were Renaissance popes, Borgias, Medici, Leo X was a Medici. None of them are canonized. And uh, Alexander VI, probably the most notorious pope, but remember he was quite smart. He did nothing against the doctrines of the church. He did have one rather major problem, that was celibacy. Mm-hmm. But he was loyal mm-hmm. to his mistress and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to the children he had from them. And uh, in fact, I think Caesar Borgia, he was, uh, Alexander VI was a Borgia. Caesar mm-hmm. uh, was his Borgia, and he took Alexander, thinking of Alexander the Great, Caesar Borgia, and the pope after him, Julius II. Okay, mm-hmm. look what these people mm-hmm. are going now. All of these popes invested heavily in art and architecture in Rome. That was expensive. Uh, Julius II, uh, quite a pope, and uh, he spent a lot of money, but remember, he left the papacy in the black. He did not, you know, he was, a, he was probably one of the best administrators. Yeah, he was yeah. not holy by any means. He also had mistresses and children, but again, nothing against the Catholic Church, although he was an excellent warrior and a very good administrator. Uh, just going on, bishops holding multiple dioceses. This was a huge problem. And you purchased these dioceses, and you had to pay for them with money you borrowed to get them. So foundational, here was, right? Yep, foundational. So this was, and then there was probably sectional jealousy. Germans not liking the Roman Church because they were spending a lot of money on the churches. So these things were going on prior to Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. The church, I mean, there was a lot of interest in in in, in the church, but there were problems. Mm-hmm. And there was a council held just prior to Martin Luther trying to address these issues, but they just couldn't quite. No. get to it. Yeah, essentially they failed. Yeah, and alongside of that, John, it would be important to highlight that while there were sparks of spiritual awakening in the late Middle Ages, the tragedy that led to the Reformation was that spiritual reform and renewal was not firmly rooted in the mainstream of the Catholic Church. So important to highlight. I mean, there were obstacles to the renewal that, in the end, God would have desired. 
from the popes to common people. I mean, the popes were faced with what? I mean, what were you talking about there? The rise of nationalism and with princes who would only allow the reform of the church in their territories for what? A price. We have popes being forced to, go, to negotiate treaties. Uh, governments making vast revenues from manipulating the church itself. As the financial situation of the popes grew worse, they began to develop ways to increase papal revenues that had many bad effects. In this age, many secular rulers also became bishops or abbots in order to control the church and receive its revenues. So the bishops of the church were often John, the wealthy or the nobility who had little care for the church or God's people, but used this office they now had to their own advantage. When they needed to raise money, what would they do? They would collect it from fees at pilgrimage sites or through the selling of indulgences. And again, to bring up the word indulgence might be the most important word to the Reformation itself. What is an indulgence? An indulgence was to uh, grant a pledge of freedom from the effect of sin after a person died, and of course, what was highlighted in this, and it was highlighted in, in uh, Luther's treatises, was uh, punishment in purgatory. Indulgences were supposed to be granted in recognition of a person's prayer or good works, but toward the end of the Middle Ages, they were peddled like merchandise. We have that famous line that comes to us from a Dominican by the name of Tetzel, who was well known for an indulgence seller. And Tetzel, by the way, sparked Luther's protest against the church. He was reported as saying, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul to heaven springs. In the end, John, the ordinary Catholic was generally untouched by the stream of renewal in their church. Their Christian life often focused on external devotions to, to saints or to Mary, you know, pilgrimage sites, again, gaining an indulgence. There was no clear understanding of the basic truths of the Catholic faith. This is the life of the church in the early 16th century. Without any sound teaching from the bishops or priests, there was no clear understanding of the Catholic church. And without any clear understanding of the Catholic church, there was not only a decline in spirituality, but consequently, John, a decline in priests. Don't forget the Black Death. There was a huge decline in the priesthood thanks to that. Mm -hmm. Priests worked with people, they caught the disease and died. Mm -hmm. There were no seminaries. You could become a priest simply becoming, like say, an apprentice to someone who already was a pastor at a local parish. Yeah. You could be, you know, take me on and pretty soon you could become a priest. So there was no training and many of these priests had virtually no education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here you have uh, this man arrive onto the scene, John, um, one Martin Luther, and as I noted off the top, he is an Augustinian monk. And what is, what is an Augustinian monk? An Augustinian monk, John, is someone who lived a very disciplined faith. I mean, this was a man of convicted faith. And so he's looking around him, and he sees corruption. You know, he sees this practice of simony. He sees this uh, practice of selling indulgences. He sees these noble officials, these secular officials, becoming bishops and in their own corruption practicing this simony. So, among other reasons, this certainly stands at the center. Another little thing is 
politics was changing, and we had a couple of, shall we say, large countries that weren't really quite countries yet. England, obviously, because they had such great yes, boundaries yes, being an island. Yes. France was a big country. Then we had the Holy Roman Empire, largely German. And then we had the Iberian Peninsula, part of the Holy Roman Empire, sort of, maybe. And then we had Italy with its various fighting factions. Mm -hmm. Now, thanks to Julius II, uh, the Papal States were made quite solid. So by the time he left, and actually until the end, uh, until Italy became a country, uh, the Papal States had a certain, shall we say, solidity to them, yes, geographic yes, solidity. Yes, yes. But anyway, you had the, and the, all of these countries kind of fought each other. They were mm -hmm. all Christian monarchs, and they all were constantly engaged in warfare over this or that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, you know, one might wonder whether any Catholics huh, were speaking out in favor of reform. Uh, certainly there were. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier. Uh, besides the, the men and women leading the spiritual awakening and, and reforming religious orders, there was that group, you mentioned them, uh, that Christian group called the Humanists. The Humanists were led by that figure, Erasmus. The Humanists were learned Catholics— who were saddened by the decline in scholastic the theology and the rise of, of this nominalism. Huh? They decided to refound Catholic thought in the Bible, but this was not enough to reform the Church. The condition of the Church had reached the point at which only the deadly, serious, fiery temperament, we can properly say, of Martin Luther would ignite a Reformation that ultimately, as you and I both know, uh, would be destined to shake and divide Christianity. And what lies at the heart of it all, John? I really want to speak to something, and this is kind of bigger picture stuff. It's the difference between the I and thou. Christianity is not centered in what I think, but what God has revealed, right? We call sacred scripture divine revelation for a reason, because it reveals God's divine love. So it's not so much about what we make the faith out to be as much as it is what we come to discover the faith to be, and ultimately how that faith forms and informs who we are. Sacred Scripture, before anything else, John, is a family heirloom that tells us who we are, and we must pray for the gift of faith so that we might enter deeper into this great mystery that we are called to enter into, and that is the mystery of divine revelation. The best definition of faith I'm aware of is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Right around in there, a good definition of faith is given, and it is the acceptance of things that we basically can't, shall we say, scientifically prove, although that was not going around in Hebrews. But uh, that, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. and, that, and revelation, yeah, we, God reveals... And we accept it and make it part of our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the acceptance of things, and in, in the context of Paul, of course, the appreciation of seeing it um, first as a gift, okay? We cannot give gifts to ourselves. A gift mm -hmm. comes to us, John, from someone else, right? Mm -hmm. So it's first a gift, and then it's an act. And in light of it being first a gift and then act, we have the fullness of the biblical vision of faith which we will again go back to in our discussion on the Reformation because it's so important and it's so central to what Martin Luther was after. Yeah. And as James 2.17 reminds us, faith without works is dead. Why? 
Because faith itself literally translates as responsive listening. So as we go deeper into Martin Luther's understanding of faith, it really is important to highlight the biblical vision of faith, okay? Which Paul in Romans 1.5 reminds us is that responsive listening. He says the obedience that springs from faith. We read in Romans 1.5 the obedience of faith, but the Greek is the obedience that is faith Ah. or the obedience that springs from faith. Uh In the bookends of uh, Paul's letter to Rome, Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, he highlights the obedience of faith to highlight what? What divine, how divine revelation discloses what faith is all about, because Paul is translating the Hebrew emunah. Emunah in the Old Testament is faithfulness. You, John, rarely see the word faith in the Old Testament because it's just not about faith, it's faithfulness. Two different things, right? Faithfulness is the response of listening, or you can translate that Hebrew as firm response. So when Paul is translating that New Testament, the obedience of faith, the obedience that springs from faith, what does the word obedience mean? Obadure, to listen, right? We respond to what God has to say us, and we do so in light of that definition according to Hebrews 12, right? We accept the things that God has revealed to us, and we do so in light of the gift that He has given us, this gift of faith, okay? So faith itself is about the firm response, which in light of James, in light of James, demands charity. Yes. Without works, it is is dead, right? So uh, again, we'll get into the solo fide even more in light of how Martin Luther interprets it, because I do think that's important. We're laying the foundation right now, John, just not historically, but also biblically, because these two really do come together. I'd like to point out that we talk about indulgence. That was what got things started. Mm -hmm. Indulgence deals with sin. During this entire thing, the sacrament of confession was intact. If you want your sins to be forgiven, you must go to confession and have them forgiven. Then, uh, should you die, your purgatory time could be remitted by these indulgences. But the main thing is the sin required confession. Mm-hmm. The indulgence was kind of a side deal. But since it re- revolved around sin and money got involved, you can see how explosive this could become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important to highlight, John, because as we talk about the sacrament of confession, it really does get to the heart of it, really, um, um, specifically repentance and also our call to give glory to God, uh-huh. which in the end, that is what our repentance is about, contrition and resolve to change so as to give glory to God. Um, and that is what our faith is all about. That is what our faithfulness is all about, that firm response. But interesting question, if it wasn't for Martin Luther, would we have had a Reformation? And the answer we may very well have had. There were, there yeah. were things that were welling up that, uh, that, that needed to be addressed. It, this thing happened so fast that it makes me think that there were issues involved that went, that went pretty deep. And Martin Luther's 95 Theses were around Germany within about a week or two thanks to the printing press. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a celebrity by Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's well put, John. And, and as it was put by one historian, the Reformation came not so much because Europe was irreligious as because it was religious, huh? I mean, Martin Luther was a gruff German of peasant stock who sparked the religious idealism of the people of Europe. 
Very important to highlight. He was also, as I noted, an Augustinian monk of a strict order and had studied hard, studied vigorously to become a professor of Scripture, of course, at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. As a monk, he found no peace in trying to clear his guilty conscience through penance and self-denial, but he experienced freedom from what he realized that man is justified by faith alone. As Paul explains in his letter to the Romans, we're going to get into this later, probably next week a bit, John, but this was the key that led to post his 95 theses on indulgences on the chapel door at Wittenberg, as you noted off the top in 1517. He renounced the Catholic dependence on good works of any sort, including indulgences to gain salvation or the remission of sin. You know, John, the irony of the Protestant Reformation is that much of what Luther believed and taught was authentic Catholic doctrine that had been distorted by abuses and incorrect practices in the church, such as the mercenary selling of indulgences. Unfortunately, Luther's criticism of real abuses was not heeded, and so Pope Leo X simply instructed Luther's superiors in his order to correct him as a rebellious monk who was questioning the church's legitimate authority to grant indulgences. At first, you know, Luther had no intention of leaving the Catholic Church, but he also refused to retract his statements until he was giving a hearing, and this leads us to Johannes Eck. Now, what I heard about Johannes Eck, in 1519, he's now a celebrity, and the church has real issues with him. And there was the Leipzig Disputations, in which Luther and Eck publicly debate. And this was, I mean, this was quite an event. I mean, mm-hmm. this oh, yeah. overshadowed yeah, yeah. the debates we've recently heard. And these two go at it. And Eck is a hugely educated man, yep. so, so is Martin Luther. Yes. And it was here that Eck got him to say, well, wait a minute, then you're saying, Martin, sola scriptura. There is only one source. And and Luther said that. Yep. So here we have, you know, uh, there there is no tradition. There yeah. is just my reading of Scripture. Yeah, and again, this is why it's so important to go back to uh, the relationship between the I versus the thou. What has God revealed? Well, as it relates to sacred Scripture and divine revelation, <laughs> divine revelation itself points to sacred tradition. Remember that great passage that comes to us in Second Thessalonians 2.15, huh? So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Okay? The traditions, what are those? Those are the teachings that Paul handed over to his readers, whether in writing or by oral instruction. Essentially, this was the standard against which doctrinal claims and moral behavior were to be measured and judged. You know, John, it's so important for us to really focus in on this point and ask the question, if divine revelation itself, that is sacred scripture, points to sacred tradition, that God himself has disclosed the importance of sacred tradition, we need to pay close attention to that and humbly submit to what not we think, but again, what God has revealed. That being said, John, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. I don't know if you had any closing thoughts or maybe um, some things you were thinking about moving ahead? Uh, well, jumping ahead, 
there's going to be a Martin Luther after Martin Luther. Man named yeah. Zwingli is going to come along quite shortly. So pretty soon now we have two variants of Protestantism, and this is going to be the problem. And so, yeah, I mean, when you have change that is not rooted in the revelation of truth, then ultimately what does that lead to? A continuous change that continues to lead to more disunity and more disorder. Change is necessary, and change is a good thing, only and always when it is rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. So as we move forward, John, one of the things that we are going to really address, we're going to next week um, get back more into the life of Martin Luther. We're going to get back more into his 95 theses and examine those more carefully. But yeah, we will talk about the impact that this made upon uh, most especially Western Europe when you start talking about Zwingli, Calvin, the Anabaptists, and many others. So uh, lots to still talk about. Once again, we only got the ball rolling here this evening. John, thank you for your gift of time. Let us go ahead and close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.